Well, greetings this Lord's morning. I certainly echo the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that I've heard from our praise band and praise team to say Christ the Lord is risen today. Hallelujah. We know that as you gather in your homes today to listen to this sermon, there are events taking place in this world of historical proportion. We live, we must say, in a unique time of history. We say this tongue-in-cheek often, but I really feel that we are close to the end of the world. Do you ever get that feeling, the unrest that we always think about in the Middle East? It's fascinating uh, to watch what's unfolding. We can look at what's happening all over the globe, and we could literally write historical over what's going on in this world. We can also consider the situation in our world and and in our own country with this pandemic of COVID-19. Has there ever been a time where we feel as unsettled as we do now? I think there's something about the situation in our world that is weighty. And the gravity uh, of the world's events right now are certainly things that we look at. All of you, all you have to do is sit around for a moment in your home and think about China, Iran, or Russia. This planet is going through incredible changes. To say that we live in historical times is not an overstatement. This week, some of my devotional reading was out of the book of Job. And I thought about all that Job suffered, and I thought to myself, Let's see what the Lord God has to say to Job. You know, beginning in chapter 38 is kind of the epilogue where we have the prologue of Job and then the dialogue of all of his friends and then the epilogue at the end. In chapter 38, God begins to speak back to Job. And in chapter 40, as he's speaking to him, this is what the Lord says. And the Lord said to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. In the face of the Lord God who controls all things, Job is like this. He doesn't know what to say because God is so awesome and mighty. And I think that's kind of where I am looking at the world knowing that God Almighty is in control, that's my response. And notice what happens in Job 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. Uh, For those of you who believe in the sovereignty of God, isn't that an awesome assurance? I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand These things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak, and I will question you, and I will make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I think for all of us, we look at the world and the historical circumstances, and we know that our king reigns, God reigns. And our response should be to our God. We just kind of put our hands over our mouths 
knowing that he is in full control, and to know that we're able to learn of our God. And if we can learn from him during these times like Job did, what an awesome thing that would be. But in consideration of historical things, in our text today, we're going to talk about two historical realities which end up being the center of everything. Job, of course, had his historical time frame that he lived in and the difficulties that he faced. And we also have our own historical days. But we can narrow down the two most important historical realities by looking at the Word of God. Most of you know that we've been studying the Good Shepherd, and today we're going to add in another title of the shepherd, which is the Great Shepherd of the Sheep, and we're going to tie it together with those two historical events, but most importantly for our day, on Easter Sunday, we're going to talk about the message of the resurrection. But listen to this text in Hebrews 13, 20 through 21, and it's going to give you the two themes that uh, are in a benediction that end up being the two most important historical realities that make sense out of everything. And I know that's a bold statement, but I'm going to give you the key to understanding everything. History doesn't pivot on current world events. It doesn't pivot on the discovery of America or the American Revolution. Human history pivots on two events and one person. The two events are the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus the Lord, and the one person is Christ Jesus himself. Listen to Hebrews 13:20. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Everything that happened before and everything that happened since happened and finds its ultimate meaning and significance in those two events and that one person. Notice how the writer of Hebrews brings it up who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to study this in a few moments. That's only used one other time in the Bible, speaking of bringing him up from the dead. And then notice the second one, the blood of the eternal covenant. So we're speaking of the cross and the resurrection. This benediction is loaded with truth. It's rooted in the fact that God is the God of peace and that he has raised up that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant. So those two events, the raising up of Jesus Christ from the dead and the blood of the eternal covenant, which is a reference to his death, are the two most important historical events ever. They are the most history-defining and personally life-changing events that have ever happened. And we're here today because of those events. We could even say that there's a good possibility that your forefathers came to this very country because of those two events. Everything comes back to those two life-changing realities, the death 
and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the writer is going to draw us into these two realities. And here's a question this morning for all of you listening. Have these two events, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, centered in the Lord Jesus Christ, have they transformed your life? That's the question we have to ask on this Easter Sunday morning. Has those two events transformed your life? The writer in Hebrews is closing his sermon. You know, when you get to the end of a book and he's wrapping it up, what he says has to be vitally important. And Hebrews is perhaps one of the most incredible theological treatises anywhere in the Bible. And we've learned so, you learn so much through Hebrews. And then he gets to the end and he wants to give them a benediction, those last words. And the focus is upon God's activity, which forms the ground of the prayer. The writer takes the major themes of the entire book of Hebrews and he brings them together. And as he brings them together, he prays a benediction on his congregation. I cannot think of a better benediction for this pastor to pray over our congregation and the people sitting in your homes that are members of this church listening to the, listening to the word. It is a, a benediction is a declaration. It's a supplication of the blessing of God on his people. And thus we are called by God's name. We bear his name in this world. Uh, a benediction is a word given to us. And in this particular case, his word and his power uh, is bringing about and shaping the blessing in our lives. You'll remember that we have been studying the good shepherd. We have seen several things. One, he gathers his sheep. We've learned that the Lord God himself, Jesus, is the very door for his sheep to enter. We studied it. And then last week we talked about the shepherd king. We brought those two motifs together and that we learned that the, the king, the shepherd king, would surrender his life for his sheep. Today, on Resurrection Sunday, we will study this final description of our good shepherd. Our text refers to him as the great shepherd of the sheep. Now before we do that, let's go back and look in the Gospel of John. And let's pick up where we stopped reading last week. And that would be John 10, verse 17 and 18. Listen to the word of the Lord. As we tie together the good shepherd and the great shepherd of the sheep, like the writer of Hebrews did for us. Verse 17 of John's gospel, chapter 10, verse 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Remember the love of the Father for the Son, according to this passage, is eternally linked with the unqualified obedience that Jesus Christ had to his Father. We see that the Son had utter dependence upon his Father. We see uh, it culminating in the absolute greatest act of obedience. Now in John 10, that was just before 
the Lord Jesus Christ at this particular time. And what was that? The willingness to bear the shame of the cross. Think about the isolation that Christ endured. Think about his obedience unto death. Think about him bearing the sin of the world and becoming a curse. And all of that was reserved for the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Just understand this straightforwardly. His death and resurrection both were part of the sovereign plan of God. Nothing is catching anyone by surprise. Here is God the Father and God the Son who existed in all eternity past, and now they are discussing the plan that was to be brought to fruition, and that was everything involved in that. Isolation, obedience to death, bearing the curse that we deserved, and the Lamb of God himself would do this. The last clause uh, should be read more like this in the words of D.A. Carson. It should be read as a purpose clause. Now, this is important. Jesus lays down his life in order that he may take it up again. And that's very, very important. Every part of this plan was instituted by the Father and the Son, and the Son in willingness to the Father in obedience. So that purpose clause is important. It reminds us that his sacrificial death was not an end in itself. And his resurrection was not a mere afterthought, wafted out of the air somewhere. His death was with the resurrection in view the whole time. Uh, I lay it down in order that I might take it up again. He died in order to rise, and by rising to proceed toward ultimate glorification, his ascension into heaven, and, and here's the awesome thing for the church of the living God this morning, and then the pouring out of his spirit in the lives of his people in order to fulfill the Great Commission. This was all the plan of God. As we look at the crucifixion from God's perspective, again, we need to understand and be assured that no part of it took place outside of the plan of God. This took place at God's command. Do you see it in John? Jesus said it. I did this from the command of the Father. Notice this here. The authority he has received from the Father sanctions not only his obedience to death, but notice the text. It also sanctions his very resurrection. So at one are the Father and the Son in this plan. Jesus will take up his life again. Hallelujah. What a wonderful thing to study the Word of God and see the connection. If you stopped reading at John 10, 11, where would that leave us? Uh, kind of leave us shepherdless, would it not? I lay down my life for the sheep. Well, what's the rest of the story? I love the way that John Piper describes it. He says this, The story does not end with a mangled shepherd lying dead among three dead wolves and sheep scattered, thirsting and starving in the desert. In actuality, Jesus' death defeated sin and death and judgment because he did not stay dead. And that's vitally important. He arose and continues to be victorious. The victorious, risen, and living great shepherd of the sheep. So Jesus is the good shepherd who, as the owner of the sheep, assumes resurrection and resurrection life after his self-surrender. 
So one major division in this sermon I want you to think about when we've talked about gathering the sheep and Christ being the only door uh, for the sheep to enter in and then the Savior laying down his life for the sheep today, we're going to put in the sermon division the term great shepherd. And this is how it reads, as the great shepherd, he rose from the dead. Now again, back over to Hebrews 13 and let's take this benediction apart for edification this morning. Chapter 13, again in verse 20, we learn, Now may the God of peace, who brought up again from the dead our Lord Jesus. Who is the source of peace? Who is the producer of peace? Well, it is the Lord God. And what is this peace? Well, it would be summed up in the word shalom. In the Old Testament, that idea of shalom or peace was big and it was broad. It would mean salvation. It would mean reconciliation. It would mean for the people of God, restoration. Shalom would actually be the Lord God making things the way they ought to be. Now, I don't know what you think this morning, but I could take a big dose of that. God making things the way they should be in light of the pandemic that we are facing But think about this. Sin is a vandalism to shalom. It is a, it is, sin is the vandalism of shalom. It makes things the way they ought not be. But when God brings peace, when God brings shalom, which is spoken of him, now may the God of peace, he restores things to the way they are supposed to be. He brings peace to his people. And note this, he does it through the blood of Jesus Christ. Through the blood of his son, he removes the alienation and the chaos and the disruption in this world because of sin. We learned last week he reconciles us to himself through the cross of his son. We were rebels. We deserve judgment. And God takes the initiative. And he reconciles us back to himself through the blood of the eternal covenant, the cross. The writer is clear that the peace we have with him vertically in the book of Hebrews, that vertical peace that we have should be lived out on the horizontal level. So our peace with each other flows from the peace that we have with our God or the peace that God has secured for us through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a blessing that is. How can we look at the cross and understand the peace that we have with God because of it and then look at a brother and sister in Christ that has the same peace accomplished and us not horizontally have peace with them? Uh, That's a terrible indictment upon the people of God. But this peace that we have with God uh, vertically should be lived out in the horizontal dimension of a church family. We should live with a reconciliation instinct that comes because of the gospel, because of the blood of the eternal covenant. So why is he described as the God of peace? Well, let's study the two descriptive reasons why found directly in front of us in Hebrews 13, 20, and 21. Now, for sure, the resurrection has been implied in the book of Hebrews many times. However, Believe it or not, this is the very first time that explicitly the word uh, or bringing up again from the dead is actually given in the book of Hebrews. That's interesting. His ascension 
and his exaltation are mentioned often, which could only take place, why? Because he did resurrect from the dead. But it's interesting that uh, this is the first time that terminology of being brought up from the dead is used. Incidentally, we celebrate resurrection every single Sunday. Amen? We do. What makes the first day of the week special for Christians is that he was raised from the dead on Sunday. We worship on the first day of the week because it is the day of resurrection. The resurrection stands as the pinnacle event of all of human history because it is through that very resurrection that the Lord God Almighty himself ratified and verified the death of his son for the payment of our sins. No resurrection, no ratification, no verification that the sin debt had been paid. But he did come forth from the grave, which verifies that his death paid the penalty. Now, there are a thousand things we could talk about concerning the resurrection. But when it comes to actually thinking about the death of Jesus as a sacrificial atonement, the resurrection, here's the way you have to see that, was God's grand ratification and his verification that his death, the death of his son, did in fact pay the penalty for our sins. That's why it's so vitally important that you see the connection of bringing him up from the dead after he had supplied for the Father's glory that eternal covenant that was bought by his blood. Those things are gigantic theological principles, and they're wed together in this text. The empty tomb is God's gigantic amen and yes to the sacrificial death of the Son of God on Calvary. So here is God who brought up that great shepherd of the sheep from the dead. And the writer of Hebrews doesn't use the ordinary language of the New Testament to talk about his resurrection. There's only one other place that this terminology, look at it again, brought again from the dead, the Lord Jesus. And it's Romans 10.17. Uh, excuse me, Romans 10.7. And here's the interesting thing. That terminology that Paul uses in Romans 10, 7 is actually colored and shaped, you guessed it, by the Old Testament. In Isaiah 63, 11 through 14. Now, without going into all of the grammatical detail, let me just say that the illusion of Paul that he uses of God bringing up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep as it's connected with Isaiah 63, would go something like this. God raised up Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. And he raised up Moses to shepherd his people, right? God, through Moses, brought the people out of Egypt. And then Moses, according to the scripture, was their shepherd. And the parallel goes like this. God, through one greater than Moses brought him out from the dead to be the great shepherd of the sheep. So just as God brought his people out of the bondage of Egypt through Moses, through the Son of God, he brings his people out of the realm of death and sin by raising up the great shepherd of the sheep. In Isaiah 63, Moses is the shepherd of the sheep. Here we find that Jesus is the Megon, great shepherd of the sheep. And here is the whole entire message of Hebrews. 
Did you know that I can capture the theme of the book of Hebrews in one word? It is the word better, right? It is the word better. He is our Savior, is incomparably the better shepherd than Moses. He is a better mediator that has enacted a better covenant that is based on better promises that has been secured by a better one-time, once-for-all sacrifice. Listen, the news is better than the old because the new is the very fulfillment of the old. The Greek term, again, for great is megon. It is where we get our word mega. He is the mega shepherd of the sheep. He is called the chief shepherd in 1 Peter 5, 4, which contextually uh, Peter is teaching uh, what the role of a pastor is and what it should look like. And he reminds us of our chief shepherd. Uh, we all, as pastors and ministers, have someone that is the chief shepherd over us, and that is the Lord God. Jesus alone is the superior mediator, mediator of the new covenant. Note the last phrase. By a verse uh, 20, the Bible says, By the blood of the eternal covenant. He brought him up from the dead because of the blood of the eternal covenant. Because of Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice, by which he established the new covenant for us, which was pleasing to the Father, the Father brought him up from the dead. Now, this, this is amazing. He is dynamically connecting the resurrection of Christ and his activity of offering up his once-for-all sacrifice. He's putting these things together. There's an awesome connection here that is so vital for believers to see. This eternal covenant bought by Christ was a final covenant, never to be repeated. And just to think of the religions out here in the world that denounce or deny the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ, that causes great consternation to me. Again, uh, my charity runs out uh, with people and religiosity when people seek to heap up things to get their access to heaven or to think that jumping from one denomination or jumping from one religious system to another and, and it's all in a goal of a works-based salvation to try to get your way to God. But this text says that he raised him up because of the eternal covenant that was procured by Christ once and for all. The resurrection was based upon the fact that God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, he brought him up because of the eternal covenant that was bought by his blood. May we never get tired of songs about the blood of Jesus. Amen? May we never get tired. There are people who shrink back from blood language. Folks, the idea to many uh, of the blood of Christ is brings about distress in people. However, I want to remind you that the reason blood is used is because it stresses the violent nature of his death. And Hebrews happens to be the bloodiest of all New Testament books. And when he says the blood of the eternal covenant, he's talking about the death of Jesus Christ in establishing the new covenant. 
He died a violent death. And he was nailed to a tree as a symbol of suffering God's curse, according to the book of Deuteronomy. It was a violent death in which he shed his blood. And the idea that Jesus actually shed his own blood to pay the penalty for our sin has always been something that the world finds unpalatable. But I pray this morning that you find life in it. There's only life in the blood of the Lamb. He shed his own blood for the remission of our sins and to establish a new and everlasting covenant in his own blood. And as far as I'm concerned, we're going to sing songs about the blood of Jesus until he comes back. Just think about some of these. Down at the cross where my Savior died. Down where from cleansing from sin I cried. There to my heart was the blood applied. Glory to his name. How about old rugged cross in verse 3? In the old rugged cross stained with blood so divine, such a wonderful beauty I see. For twas on that old cross Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify me. And one of my favorites is there is a fountain. Listen to this verse. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And the final verse of that wonderful hymn, Ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Aren't you thankful for the blood of Jesus Christ? And again, this covenant wasn't temporary. This covenant is eternal. Now think about in Hebrews. The types and the shadows of the Old Testament where priests were entering in and making those sacrifices daily that could never fully atone for sin. Yet the Lord Jesus Christ entered in not having to have his own sins removed because he was sinless, but he entered in himself and made a once-for-all sacrifice for our sins that is eternal, not temporary. Never has to be repeated again. Praise God. Let me give you two applications of all of this that we've talked about before we're finished. The first one is this. The message of the resurrection confirms our faith. Where is faith without the resurrection? 1 Corinthians 15, 14 says, And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. No reason for me to preach today if Christ didn't come forth from the grave, right? And it adds, your faith is also empty. If there is no resurrection, then, the, then Christianity will fold like a house of cards. All they had to do to stamp out Christianity was present a body. And you know all the theories, hallucination, uh, swoon theory, disciples stole the body. We could talk about all those things, but the fact of the matter is, all they had to do to stop Christianity was bring out a body. But, you know, they couldn't. Verse 17 says, and if Christ is not risen, in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, your faith is futile. And check this out, you are still in your sins. That's why it's so important to see the resurrection as verification ratification, that the penalty has been paid. Why? Because Paul would remind us in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, that if Christ is not risen, our faith is futile, and we're still in our sins. It is empty. It is void. It's like a shell with no nut inside. We, we don't have Christianity nor salvation at all if Christ is not risen. 
There's nothing there. It's like uh, eating cotton candy at the fair. You close your mouth and it's gone. Now think with me for a moment. It's obvious that in the New Testament as you read the hill of Calvary, Golgotha, the cross, did it cause problems in the minds of the disciples and everyone else? You better believe it. It caused doubt. It raised confusion in their faith. If Christ is not risen, then your faith is vanity instead of verity. With the resurrection, the disciples had substance to their faith. Here these disciples were meeting behind closed doors and in obscurity and afraid. But all of a sudden, when they met the resurrected Lord, what happened? They were ready to take the gospel to the ends of the earth no matter what happened. With the resurrection, the disciples of Christ had total substance, substance to their faith. The resurrection therefore confirmed their faith. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So the resurrection proved the ultimate goodness of our God. God will win over evil. He will win over it. The last word is held in the throat of the sovereign God, and he will speak it. Our God is sovereign. Jesus said, since I live, you live also. Have you ever read that and thought how glorious that is? He who lives and believes in me shall never die. And we know this old flesh, it's, it's going to, uh, if we live long enough, you're going to die unless Jesus comes back and you precede those who have fallen asleep, you're going to die. But he's talking about spiritual life that we have. Now, this is strange talk that Jesus would say these words. Since I live, you shall live also. He who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, it's strange talk from a man that could not even stop his own death, right? I mean, he said this prior to dying, and yet he died. Uh, I live, you also live, but then he died. If he remains dead, there, folks, is no immortality, and then our faith is not substantiated. It is all blind. You see, when Jesus died, let's be honest, Christianity died with him. It did. But when he was laid in the tomb, Christianity was laid there with him. But when he arose, Christianity rose with him. That is the reality of our faith. So no resurrection, then there's no Christianity. Aren't you thankful? When he rose, Christianity rose up also. Romans 1.4 says, He was declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the Son of God. Declared to be the Son of God with power through the resurrection. Because he is alive and lives, here's the news, immortality is mine. Immortality is yours. If you don't have anything like that, feeling the life of the resurrected Savior in you. You are like the little boy who went with his dad to the graveside of his mother who had just recently died, and there was a fresh mound of dirt forming the grave that contained her body. They stood there quietly weeping, and suddenly the little boy just broke away from his father and he, father's grasp, and he flung himself across that mound of dirt, his mother's grave, and with his arms just reaching out to embrace that mound of dirt, he lay there with his head turned like this on the ground, just weeping. 
Then he became quiet, and his father stood there and just waited and watched. And in a little while, in complete quietness, the little boy looked up to his father and said, Oh, Daddy, it is so quiet. Everything is so quiet. And that's the way it is, my friends, if Christ Jesus the Lord had not risen. Right? Everything is quiet. Nothing comes. If he is not alive, only nature's silence comes to us from the gloom of the tomb where he remain, his remains were deposited. As Don Balt Ziegler Jr. once wrote a song, here's one of the verses. They hung their heads in sorrow for Jesus their Lord had died. No reason to live tomorrow. The eleven bowed down and cried. Then Mary ran down the dusty road, crying, Peter, come see where he lay, for I've seen the master outside the tomb. Jesus is risen today. Hallelujah. To think about the difference that Jesus Christ, the Greek word is hegerote. Can you imagine how many times that word, that phrase, he is risen, was said over and over and over to the disciples as the gospel spread? Christ the Lord is risen Today, So, as Lewis Johnson said, the resurrection is God's amen to Christ's, it is finished. When Jesus said to Telestai, paid in full, it is finished on the cross, God's, the resurrection was God's amen to confirm our faith. So the message of the resurrection confirms our faith. Second, the message of the resurrection changes our lives. Note our text. The scripture says that it will equip you with everything good that you may do his will. We like to think about the resurrection and it confirms our faith. But how often do we see people come to the church but never get plugged in or never serve or, or never get into the body of Christ like we should? Folks, the New Testament knows nothing of someone who who is confirmed to be a believer based upon the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and you are saved by grace through faith, the New Testament knows nothing of people that are not involved in a body. So if the resurrection of Christ hasn't changed your life, you need to look back on the day you trusted Christ or the day you think you did and ask yourself, am I truly a born-again believer? Am I truly saved? Why? Because not only does it confirm our faith, folks, but it changes our lives. All of salvation, forgiveness of sins, renewal of life, is through Christ Jesus the Lord. And God has made full provision for you to be saved. God has made full provision for your growth in godliness. Check this out. Equip you with everything good that you may do his will. What a blessing. That God has changed us from the inside out in such a way that he's given us all that we need to do, to have, to do his will. Isn't it amazing that there are so many Christians who have no victory in life when we have a risen Lord? It's a shame. It, it's, it's, it's unbelievable that we can have a risen Christ and yet people have no victory or joy in life. I mean, right now, we presently have a living Christ. What a conquering presence Jesus is. The resurrection is not just something that occurred in a dead and distant past. He is active on the stage. And he can conquer your soul right there in your room today, in your house. 
He is active on the stage, and he's active every day conquering the souls of men. Don't you love Revelation 1.18? Listen to Jesus as he stands in all of his glory when he says this, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys to death, to Hades, and death. There's only one person that holds the keys. Only one person that has the authority to open the way of heaven, to close the way of heaven, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And he's marching through this place today. He's marching through this world, and the Bible teaches us that he's gathering in his train the very ones that he will give life eternal to. And those who do so by simple faith will renounce themselves and open their hearts and receive him. The Bible says, to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Consider with me, at the end of this sermon, the two mountaintops in all of Scripture. The resurrection are two huge mountaintops, the resurrection and Pentecost. Can you track back in your mind and think about Pentecost and what happened on that day? Well, think about that. The resurrection released the power of God. And Pentecost, the Spirit of God, anointed the body of Christ for the task that we have. So the resurrection power of Christ, the ability to change lives, was, was what took place when he resurrected. But he also, at Pentecost, poured out his Spirit and put his Spirit in those who were saved and, and all those who come to faith in Christ are given the Holy Spirit of God. Think about that. It's sadly, tragically true that we've often lived on the wrong side of both or one of those two incredible realities of resurrection and Pentecost. We live, we live often as if Jesus had not risen. And we lived often like the Holy Spirit had not come. Now you put the both of them together the resurrection of Christ, and the pouring out of his spirit, you combine those two, and that's what made early Christians braver than the Roman legions. It made them more determined than all of their adversaries. And here we are in the comfortable confines of the U.S. of A., and we rarely show this kind of determination against any adverse effects to us regarding the gospel or living the Christian life. When we have failed at any time over the past 20 centuries since Christ uh, has been raised, it's because we've lived on the wrong side of one or both of these incredible realities. Think about this. To live on the wrong side of Easter is to declare Jesus dead. And to live on the wrong side of Pentecost is to declare that the church is powerless. But put them together. Jesus is alive. And he's supplying the power within us to do his work. He's equipping us to do all that God has called us to do. Look around in your home this morning. Look around in your circle of influence. Our God has the power to change lives. Think about who you were before you met Christ. Think about how God has changed your life. And again, as the old hymn says, up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever with the saints to reign. Hallelujah for the Savior we have. Let us pray. Great God, we just bow in total reverence to you. 
hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, your will be done. Father, we bask in the love of Jesus that he would obey your plan. Looking at John 10, 17 and 18, to just look at that interchange between two persons of the divine trinity, God the Father and God the Son, to know that your crucifixion and your resurrection were part of the plan of God, not accidents, not plan B, C, or D, but plan A, only one plan to redeem mankind. And then to look at Hebrews 13 and see that connection bringing him up from the dead because of the blood of the eternal covenant. Thank you, Jesus, that you paid it all. And all to you we owe. All glory belongs to you. We shall not and will not boast in man's works or anything that the flesh can accomplish. We glory and boast in Jesus Christ alone and his blood, and his sacrifice to forgive us of our sins. On this glorious Resurrection Sunday, may we be a people that look at the resurrection of Jesus and say, yes, that confirms my faith. My faith is verified and confirmed because Christ Jesus conquered the grave. Furthermore, one of these days God will take these bodies that are in the grave, and he will put them back together, howbeit glorified, and raise our bodies incorruptible. We look forward to that. Father, not only that, but we look to you knowing that your blood paid the penalty, Lord Jesus, for our sins, paid the price. And Lord, if there's anyone under the sound of my voice that is lost, alienated, at enmity with you, separated because of sin, Lord, may you save them. God, may you touch their hearts and draw them into yourself so that they will understand a confirmed faith. Understand what it means to be saved. And Lord, we end this by saying to you, Father, if we're truly saved, then Lord God, help us to live like it. God, the message of the resurrection changes our lives. Help us to live like that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.